Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 32. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul says, Do you eagerly await Christ's return? Or are you more concerned with storing up earthly treasures? Do you truly believe that Christ will bring a reality much better than the one that we presently experience? Consider these things in prayer and ask the Lord to make you eagerly await His return. So here we are at the end of Mark chapter 13. And if I can make a confession to you, of all the things that I hope that I am as a pastor, that I'm very transparent and real, and then I tell you what I really think, if I can confess to you, I was not looking forward to preaching through this chapter at all. I was not looking forward to it. Ever since I began reading through Mark and, and preparing to start preaching on it, as I began the very first chapter and I looked ahead to chapter 13, I'm like, I do not, I do not want to preach through that chapter. I want, in fact, I would just, I just rather skip it. Because the truth is, I just wanted to avoid it. And, and the reason why is not because I don't love the Word of God. It's just because of all the subjects in, in Christianity that frustrate me, the subject of eschatology, the study of the end times, frustrates me to no end. Right? And, you know, and, and I want you to understand, it's not actually the subject matter itself that frustrates me. It's not. In fact, the, the topic itself of eschatology is absolutely a fascinating topic. There's so much to think about. There's so much to talk about. I actually like the, the subject. I actually like studying about it. I've been studying it for over 10 years. Right? I like learning about the different points of view. I, I like learning how, how the church historically has, has viewed this topic and changed over time about this topic. I like learning the differences between dispensationalism and covenant theology. I like growing in my understanding of the differences between historical dispensational premillennialism, right, and and historical millennialism and post and amillennialism, and all the isms that go along with that. Right? I like learning how how a person's end times perspective actually influences and affects their overall theology without them even knowing that it does. Right? Whether it's a, a person who calls himself a leaky dispensationalist or a 1689 federalist. I actually get really excited about all the geeky terms. I really get excited about how all the parts and pieces go together. I like studying the, the arguments for each position. It's a, it's a fascinating uh, subject to study about and think about. In fact, I'm actually thinking about teaching a class on eschatology next year, you know, an actual like theology class where we actually like take every one of the positions and fairly and accurately represent what they really are, their strengths and their weaknesses, so that each person can draw their own conclusion. Because I think it's something we need to think about. I think it's something that we need to grow in our understanding of. And I'm always in favor of people spending more time in the Bible anyway. So please understand me. It's not the subject matter that frustrates me. What has frustrated me for years is how some Christians tend to act and how the Christians tend to treat other people when it comes to this topic. The topic of eschatology is one of those divisive you know, issues, more divisive than probably most other doctrines in Christianity. 
I mean, really, this, this is a doctrine that, that divides entire churches. It, it divides entire denominations. It has really been a tragic stain upon our country as a whole that this thing has been the thing that we fight about. Right? What you and I believe ultimately about the end times is not even essential to our faith. That's what's even tragic about it. Right? I mean, the truth is, what we all really need to know, what we really need to believe about the end times, is that Christ is coming back like he promised he's going to. And when he does, it will be in victory, and he will make all things right, and he will consummate his redemptive work, and those who are in Christ will be in joy forever in his presence, and those who are not in Christ will spend eternity separated from God in hell forever. That's really the essence of the things that we need to know. Right? That's what we need to believe. The rest of the details are just things that people have been talking about for, for two millennia. And by the way, there's not been an agreement since that time. And so the rest of the details are not essential. And, and I say this because there's so many people around us. And I'm not saying in here, but I mean around us, right? There's so many people around us who think that your end times perspective is definitional of your faith. Right? There are people who believe that if you don't have the right tribulation view, if you don't have the right millennium view, then you ultimately are not saved. There's even whole churches that believe that. In fact, I, this church at one point avowed that. You had to actually have, to be a member of this church, a particular narrow view of the end times. Right? It's, it's, it's preposterous. Right? In fact, if, 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 if it's definitional of faith... I want you to realize then there has not been a Christian since Christ left to the 19th century, if that's the, the case. Because historically speaking, what the church believed about the end times has been all over the place, right? What's interesting, when you study scripture, when you, I mean, you study the church history and you read the works of the church fathers, what you find is a lot of us Christians make a lot of assumptions about how they felt about things and about what they actually believed that really isn't 100% accurate. And sometimes we, we think that they had more agreement about things like the end times than there, there really was. But it doesn't take very long to read, you know, Tertullian and, and, and uh, Thomas Aquinas or um, uh, Augustine. It doesn't take very long to read them and you find that they didn't see it all the same either. Right? What, the, what the church historically agreed on, though, has been the central creeds of the faith, the central essentials of the faith, the nature of what Scripture is, has been something the church has agreed on. Who God is, the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, uh, and, and the gospel, the centrality of the gospel. These are the things that we believe today as the church, and the church has always held to. You can trace those things all the way back through time. There is a historic Christian faith that unites all believers, whether you're Baptist, Presbyterian, Assembly of God, right? What, if, if you call yourself a Christian, there's an orthodoxy that all Christians have believed in, Right? And that, that, that historically speaking, all churches have, have held to. And so I think that we need to remember when it comes to the subject then of, of the end times, which is not an essential, we need to have a lot of grace for each other. And, and I'm wrapping up with this because I just think that we just need to be reminded of that. Right? We need to be humble enough to admit that maybe we don't have all the answers, you know, and that what we actually are holding on to, what we think to be to really, really firm, might be incorrect. Like I said, I've been studying this issue for over 10 years, and there have been times I feel like I've got a handle on it, and then, and, and then there are times I'm like, okay, I, I don't have a handle on it. In fact, here's what I want to do. Is, is, you see these two men up here? That's, that's John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. These are two men I have, in, I have, I have great respect for. These are two men who have, who have greatly influenced my, my ministry personally and as a pastor. They have influenced how I preach. They, they influenced how I exposit the text. Right? These two men are, are two men that you would do well to, to get to know and to listen to uh, because they have hours of sermons and teachings online, not to mention they've written many books. You cannot spend enough time listening to or reading these men.
These two men are known around the world for their love of the scriptures and their ability to exposit the text. These men are faithful Bible teachers. In fact, they both have study Bibles. They both have their own study Bible. You have the John MacArthur Study Bible, and you have the Reformation Study Bible by Dr. R.C. Sproul. And, and they've been ministers, right? They have ministries that span the globe. Everybody knows and, and heard about Grace to You. That's John MacArthur's ministry. And then R.C. Sproul's is Ligonier Ministry, which is better known by Renewing Your Mind. A lot of you, how many of you have grown up listening to Renewing Your Mind? Yeah, a number of you, right? It is safe to say that these two men are some of the most influential Christians in the 20th and 21st century, not just in America, but around the world. Right? And I want you to also know that not only are these men giants of our faith, but they were really close friends. Right? They were close friends. They preached in each other's pulpits. These men have done countless conferences together. R.C. Sproul came to the Master's Conference. You know, John MacArthur would go to the Ligonier Conference. These two men referred to each other from their pulpits. These two men would absolutely defend each other if anyone questioned their orthodoxy. And they had great respect for each other as pastors and theologians, and they were absolutely united in the essentials of the Christian faith. They both were united on the centrality of the gospel, the supremacy of Scripture, I mean, the supremacy of Christ and the inerrancy of Scripture. But when it came to the subject of the end times, they were not united at all. They had completely different points of view, completely different points of view. John MacArthur is a dispensationalist. He calls himself a leaky dispensationalist. There's a lot of talk to go into that, but R.C. Sproul is not. He said that he's a, he believes in covenant theology. Right? He believes in, in that particular form of, of theology. These two points of view actually are fundamentally different in almost every way, in the way that they actually interpret certain passages of Scripture and the way that they see you know, Israel in the way that they see the end times. But ultimately, what I want you to understand is these differences didn't matter at all. Why? Because these men were united by the essentials. They were united by the gospel. They were united by what was really matters. They had grace for each other in the area of non-essentials. Now you might say, well, of course they had differences. John MacArthur's a Baptist. You know, R.C. Sproul is a Presbyterian, so of course there's differences. They're, they're in different denominations. Well, Josh Bice and Vody Bauckham are both Baptists. Both of them had their roots in the Southern Baptist Convention, but they still do not have the same end times view. Josh, I think, is a dispensationalist. I think Vody Bauckham is a 1689 Federalist. The two have very, very, very different perspectives in how those things work out and how they interpret the book of Revelation. And the reason why I mention this is these two guys are really close friends as well. And Josh invites Bodie every year to come speak at, at the G3 conference. He's one of the key speakers at the G3 conference every year. And this is a conference sponsored by Josh's church. You see, the differences are not, for them, worth dividing themselves over. And so my point in bringing this up as we wrap up chapter 13 is this. If every one of these men who have spent years in seminary and who've studied out the issues and have read all the books and listened to the experts and prayed for insight from the Lord, and after all of that, they don't all agree on the same perspective, but yet they have grace for each other and they can fellowship with each other and can be united in the essentials. If they can do that, then the rest of us and the rest of them out here can do the same thing. That's my point, right? That's where I think we need to focus, is there's a gospel that needs to be preached, and that's what it saves, not a person's end times perspective. And with that being said, even though I dreaded this idea of preaching through Mark chapter 13, and, and even though that there have some have, have made a point to strongly disagree with me about my perspective that I've been preaching from, which is quite all right, I've been absolutely blessed with the time that we have spent in this text together. And I'm going to tell you why I'm blessed. is because through this chapter, God has grown me as a Christian and as a man and as a pastor. He's grown me as an expositor of the text because, because this is such a difficult passage of Scripture, I have spent extra time thinking about it, right? 
I knew I was going to have to preach it, and I didn't want, and I I knew that I had to spend the work to make sure that I could do it in a way that's fair, that represents what the text says and doesn't cause arguments and division. And so I spent a lot of extra time thinking about it, extra time working through the text, working through the Greek, actually diagramming sentences and drawing, you know, where the conjunctions go and... I spent extra time in commentaries, extra time, you know, asking God to help me preach the truth that's found in this text. This text has really caused me to dig even deeper. And the results for me, I think, personally have been amazing. And it's been a blessing to find what God has been revealing to us through his word. Yes, chapter 13 is about the destruction of Jerusalem and the future return of Christ. But that's not all that it's about. God has revealed so much to us through this text with respect to what it means to not only know Christ, but to follow him. In this text, we have seen the hope-inspiring promise of Christ's return, that we are holding on to the fact that he's coming back for his people. We look forward to it. All of us look forward to that. We also see the unshakable nature of Christ's promises. His promises do not ever fail. I'm holding on to that. We've seen the way in which God takes care of his people and provides for them who trust in him. And we have seen how Christ calls us to obediently follow him even when it's hard, even when it's dark, even when it doesn't make any sense. This chapter of Mark has been challenging, but also hope-inspiring. And it has personally drawn me even closer to God. And I want you to, I want you to and I know more about him than when I, when I started And my hope is that you do too. My hope has been as we went through this journey together that maybe we don't agree on all the details, but that you have heard God speak to you in a way that's relevant to your life and that he is changing you and shaping you by his his word. And I'm glad that we've had a chance to walk through this text together. And I'm glad I'm able to say that at the end of this. (laughs) And at the end of the day, we might not agree on exactly how the details work out and what the fig tree represents or the abomination of desolation is. But we can agree that Christ is coming back in power and in glory. And he's coming back for his people. And we all together stand and await that. That is our hope to finally, whether it be by our death or by his return, that we can spend eternity in the the presence of our, our Savior. Christ is coming back and we all look forward to that. And in today's text, We're going to see how Jesus wants us to actively look forward to that time. That's really the essence of what we're going to be talking about today. So again, turn with me to Mark chapter 13, and we're going to begin in verse 32. And it says, but concerning that day or that hour. Now, we established six weeks ago that chapter 13, again, is one of the most difficult texts in the Bible. Most scholars agree on that point. Because the question is, is Jesus talking about the distant future? Is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? Or is he talking about both? And our approach has been to this text that Jesus is talking about a real event that happened in history in AD 70. But it's also a template for what God is going to do in the future. And we believe that Jesus is also talking about, you know, both things. The destruction of the temple and, right, the future return in power and glory. And we spent a lot of time unpacking that over six weeks. And I would encourage you, if you missed any of that, we covered a lot of ground. Go back and listen to the parts that you miss. But with that, let's briefly remind ourselves where we are in the story. This begins with Jesus telling them that the, the, the temple is going to be destroyed. Right? He tells them the city and the temple is going to be destroyed. And they ask him, when is this going to be and how are we going to know this is going to happen? And Jesus answers this question about when the city would fall in verses 5 through 23. Jesus tells them what's, what's going to happen. And he's going to tell them what, what people mistake for the end times. And then he's going to tell them a clear sign that the city is going to be destroyed. And then Jesus... And so Jesus was talking about a real event in time. I want to, we, we can't lose sight of that. But it also... This event is a template for what he's going to do in the future. Jesus, right, then tells us explicitly what he's going to do in the future or how he's coming in the future in verses 24 through 27. And in those three verses, Jesus moves from the the near future to the distant future, and he explains his his return in power and glory in very prophetic and um, 
one very prophetic and apocalyptic uh, expressions. He really re- references a lot of the Old Testament prophets to explain what's happening. And so verses 5 through 27, we have both of the events in view. The judgment of God upon the city of Jerusalem and then the coming judgment of Christ in the final judgment. Right, And, and, and the reason why I emphasize this is because the last two sections of chapter 13 remind us to be watchful as his disciples a theme that's been running throughout the entire chapter. But in these last two sections, Jesus is really emphasizing this watchfulness with two different analogies that are, that are related to two different events. Verses 27 through 31 reminds us to be watchful for the fall of Jerusalem. It reminds his disciples to be watchful for that um, by symbolizing the fig tree and telling them that that generation will not pass away until that happened. That's what we talked about last week. This week, though, Jesus reminds his disciples to be watchful for his return, and he uses the analogy of the master who goes away and leaves behind his servants to do their work as an example. Right? Jesus is exhorting his followers to be watchful with that example of his triumphant return. That's what he's talking about. So last week's text is about the fall of Jerusalem, which is an allusion to the future. And today's text is more explicit about the final return of Christ and how followers are to be watchful, anticipating that return. Now, with that being said, right, not everyone is going to agree exactly you know, how we work this out for the last six weeks. Right? Some of you might see the symbolism a little bit differently, and that's okay. We can disagree about those things. But what we can agree about is the fact that Christ is coming back, and he calls us to be watchful for his return. And that is right, and, and that, that is what this text is about, is how are we to be watchful for his return? Right? And what I want to say up front is this. When Christ says to be watchful, he's not telling us to stand outside, staring up at the sky, looking for Jesus to magically appear. Okay? That's not what he's saying. Right? Neither is he saying that we need to sit around watching TV and reading news sites and reading conspiracy theory books about, you know, written by false teachers like blood moons and Bible codes and harbingers and and trying to decipher current events to make that fit with Daniel and Revelation. That is not what it means to be watchful. Vodi Bauckham once commented on on the book, uh, he said that the one book that most congregants want to hear preached is the same book that most pastors don't want to preach on. And that is the book of Revelation. And he, and, he, and he said the reason for that is because most people have the wrong view of the book of Revelation. He says that most people view Revelation as a puzzle book we need to try to decipher. But he says Revelation actually is not a puzzle book to figure out. It is, it is a picture book of the glory of Christ when he finally finishes redemptive work. It's all about Jesus and his, his glory. The American obsession with reading signs of the times is not what Jesus had in mind when he said to be watchful. Not to mention, it's been a a huge distraction from what Christ has been calling us to do. I recently had a conversation with uh, someone, I mean, mean, just the other day. And we were talking about how strange the world has become with COVID. And it it has been. It is like otherworldly, right? And without missing a beat... Without missing a beat, this person goes, you see all the prophecies are coming true. I'm going, what are you talking about? What, what specific ones? Can you tell me, right? right well, the, well, the end is right around the corner. And, and this person is so convinced that their end times perspective is correct that they begin to lament. I mean, like visibly lament their young grandchildren almost as if there's not any hope for them at all. It's like, why did my kids have kids almost was the question, Right? Like, like, they're not going to be able to grow up. Like, they're not, this person's convinced their grandchildren will not be able to get married and have their own kids. The future is already lost for them. That's how pessimistic they are. And as, and as if this person knows that Jesus is going to be coming back in the next year or two. Understand this confidence in the end time, that particular end times perspective really made them pessimistic of the future. And, but the problem is, this is what staggers me. It's not causing this same person to go make sure that their kids and their grandkids are in Christ and in church every Sunday. I'm thinking if you're convinced that he's coming back next week, then you better get him in church, right? It's just the, the disconnection is 
is staggering to me. It's an unhealthy obsession for some people. And understand, I, th- I think we need to, I believe we need to study the end times. Right? I believe we need to study it. And then the more we know about the book of Revelation, you know, the more we know about Christ. But if you know more about Revelation than you do Romans, there's a problem. Revelation is apocalyptic and hard to understand. Romans is a clear presentation of the gospel. If you know more about the rapture than you do the Trinity, there's a problem. If you know more about how to explain your perspective on the millennium, but you can't explain the gospel, church, we have a problem. Watching for Christ isn't watching the news wondering how the latest developments in the Middle East line up with some passages of the Old Testament. Watching for Christ is something more important than that. And that's what we're going to actually see in this text. But Jesus says, I want you to hear this, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. I'll let that sink in a little bit. Because when people start talking to me and say, do you think, do you think, do you think, I would say, no one knows. Right? You heard that, right? No one knows. Right from the mouth of Jesus, concerning that day, concerning that hour, Right? The day that we're all waiting for, right? The day that we are all hoping for, the day that we're all excited about, the day that we're all looking forward to as Christians. No one knows. Who knows? No one knows, right? No one knows. Right? This is universal. And, and I know I'm probably harping on this a little bit. Indulge me. But for as clear as this truth is, It seems that there are people around us who think that they know. There are people who in this community think that they know. Maybe not specifically, but at least generally that Christ will come. Like They don't know the exact date, maybe, but they kind of know the season or the general timeline. But Jesus says so very clearly here, it's not even, there's no equivocation. No one, no one knows. And the Greek that he uses here, the verb, this is where I had to really do some homework, okay? This Greek verb is in the perfect imperative active. Like you really needed to know that, right? But what that means for you and me is this, is Jesus, when he says that says this, it's actually a statement of settled fact. It's a settled reality. Nobody knows, which means it's impossible for people to know. Right? And not only that, but the verb that he uses here has a sense of continuing results of that previous action, meaning that no one's going to know. Right? That's, the, that's the idea, that it's such a subtle issue that no one in the future is going to know. That's the thing we need to understand. What Jesus is saying is no one's going to know the hour or the day, which means somebody says to you, oh, I know the date. You say, no, you don't. No, you don't. I'm sorry. I love you, but no, you don't. Hush your mouth before you become a false teacher, okay? No, you don't. Let me be clear what this means for all of us. We don't know the hour of the day. We have our suspicions. We see the way the world's going. We think, Lord, how long can this keep going on? Because it seems so crazy and out of control. But we still don't know. I don't care if an angel stands next to your bed and says to you, hey, it's going to happen tomorrow at noon. Right? I don't care if you have the same repeated dream for the next 20 years. I don't care right, if you feel like you've heard a direct voice from God that says, you know, Friday the 13th, 2025. You know, I don't, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what your personal experiences are. Jesus, in his infallible, inerrant, and unchanging word says, you don't know. So guess what? Can we settle that right now? You don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So when somebody asks me, do you think? I go, I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. The world's crazy. Things are going crazy. I can't imagine being crazier than that, but I don't know. And so when we see people promoting books that say this sign is a sign of Christ or, or this planetary alignment is, you know, means that there's a tribulation coming or, or this economic downturn means that Jesus is coming back at any second. Do me a favor. If you're going to spend money on books, then, then, then buy a book from Vody Bauckham or James White or R.C. Sproul. In fact, if you don't own R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God, 
then you need to buy that book. It needs to be the next book that you buy, The Holiness of God. And I promise you, that one book will be much more beneficial to your walk with Christ than all of the other books written by the so-called prophecy experts combined. I mean that sincerely. I've read lots of books in my lifetime, and the one that has absolutely just made me fall in love with God more than any other is that one right there. It would be worth your while. But here's the thing. We can't know the hour or the day. But we can know the one who does know. And that, I think, is more, more, much more important. You cannot know the hour of the day, but you absolutely, without question, can know the one who does know, which is infinitely more important. And I want you to hear me out on this. Knowing God and growing in your knowledge of God is much more important than possibly knowing the hour of the day. Because, let's just be honest, if you knew the hour of the day, but you didn't know God, it wouldn't matter. Because you'd lose anyway. Knowing God is much more important. And if you do know God, and if you do understand who He is, and you understand who you are and who He is, and if you do understand what, what He has done for you, right, that you can't do for yourself, and you understand the grace that He has given you, and the love that He's extended to you, and you understand what He's called you to do, if you understand all that, then it really doesn't matter what the hour of the day is. Because your hope isn't in knowing, your hope is in Him. We're much better off spending our time learning more about Christ and who He is than we are trying to figure out exactly the time and the date. Who who remembers Harold Camping here? Anybody remember Harold Camping? Nobody remembers Harold Camping. Okay, you do, all right. Well, praise the Lord for that. Anyway, Harold Camping was a guy who was famous in America for setting dates. Like, you know, and, and there were people that would sell all of their stuff. I mean, everything they had, houses, cars, boats, and then they'd buy billboards, and they would start putting billboards around and said, here's the date the rapture's going to happen. After about the fifth time, he said, you know what? I'm going to stop doing this because obviously I'm wrong. Uh, those people would have been better off, you know, in church studying the Word of God. But the fact of the matter is, is... Uh, some of us get caught up in reading texts like this. And I say when I say us, I'm talking about me too, okay? Some of us get caught up in reading texts like this, looking for, for the answers to the questions of the, the big puzzle that we actually miss what the text is actually teaching us about who God is. You see, not only in verse 32 do we find out or do we know that, we, that, that Christ will return, but, th- but, but verse 32 is is a theologically pregnant verse, meaning that it is theologically filled with with truths about Christ that are actually essential to our faith. When you really look at verse 32, there is so much to who Christ is in that verse that it's so easy to skim over it because we're looking past that. We're looking to the end. Okay, okay, Jesus, so we're we're watching and we're waiting. What are we watching for? The fact is this, this, this section actually is theologically rich about who Christ is, who we are, and what Christ expects us to do. And so look with me to verse 32. Jesus says, No one knows the hour of the day, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Now, theologically speaking, it is obvious that this is about the return of Christ. right? That's what he's talking about. It's clear. But this text also has a great deal to teach us about some important, essential truths about who Christ is. Because notice Jesus says, no one knows, not even the Son. I don't know about you, but that expression by itself should stop you in your tracks. You should read that and go, wait a minute, why? Why doesn't he know? I mean, we've been talking about since chapter 1 that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's been a foundational truth we've been talking about from the beginning. We've been talking about how Jesus' omniscience has been showing up over and over again. I remember the time when he's, you know, at Peter's house and the, um, and the crowd is there and the paralytic man gets lowered down. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And like they're thinking to themselves, wait a minute, he's blaspheming. How did he know their thoughts? He knew what they were thinking. Or how about the time when Jesus is up on the mountain and two miles away in a storm in the dark, he can see his disciples are struggling to make their way across the lake. He can't see that physically. How did he see that? 
right? Or how about when, you know, he gets to Jerusalem and he says, hey, when you go into town, when you go by that house, there's a donkey out there tied up that nobody's ever been ridden on. How do you know that? Right? We've seen his omniscience throughout the, throughout the, the, the narrative. We've seen that he is God. So how in the world does he not know? Well, what this reveals to us is a doctrine that we don't think about enough or talk about enough. It's a doctrine of the incarnation. Right? The doctrine of Christ, you know, God the Son, becoming a real man. We say that he's a man, but we, we don't ever really think about what that means. Right? This doctrine tells us that Jesus is both fully God, but he's also fully man. Which means, in the one person Christ, there exists two distinct, different natures. Two natures that never actually mix or combine, which is a weird thing to think about. Christ has a full human nature. He also has a full divine nature. And these natures are always separate. They don't mix, which means Jesus' nature as God doesn't get combined with a human nature, which would make him less than God, which make him not God. And his human nature never gets mixed with a divine nature because that would make him, his humanity divine, which means he wouldn't be really human. But Jesus is both of these, simultaneously, fully God and fully man. And the fact is, for Jesus to be the sacrifice for our salvation, it required both of these things, both being God and man. He had to possess both natures. You see, as a man, he can legitimately stand in our place before God as our sacrifice, our substitutes. And as God, he can reconcile us back to himself. As God and as man, he is the one who bridges the gap between God and man. It's necessary. It is absolutely essential that he is both of those things. And what you need to understand is, is if Christ is not, is not both fully man and fully God, then you can't be saved. Because Jesus, if he's not human, if he wasn't really a man, then he's just a, a puppet pretending to be one of us which means he, didn't, he can't actually really trade places with us. That means his life would be a farce. His sacrifice wouldn't be real. He's not a real human. But from the beginning of this gospel, Mark makes it clear that Jesus is a man. And we even see that at his baptism. Jesus comes out of the water, and what happens? The Holy Spirit descends upon him in order to strengthen him for his mission. Right? He was dependent upon the Holy Spirit like we are, for the work that he was doing as a man. And the baptism itself was a symbol of Christ identifying with us, saying, I'm one of you. He never needed to repent, but he baptized, was baptized in the same way that we were, saying, I'm standing in your place. I'm one of you. He was just like us without sin. In fact, Paul tells us in Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus has a full human nature. That's what we see here. That's why he doesn't know. Right Now, he knows in his divine nature, but in his human nature, he doesn't know. But you might say, well, wait a minute, that's, how is that even possible? How can he know in his divine nature, but not know in his human nature? Remember, these natures don't mix it's, which is a weird, I mean, when you, when you start thinking about this, it'll make your head just about pop off. But, 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 but this mind-bending truth has been visible for us ever since the beginning. Remember when Jesus was born, which Christmas is coming up really soon. When Jesus was born, he was already in that moment fully God, fully divine. He was fully divine the moment he was conceived. Right? He was fully God all that time. But when he was born... He didn't have the ability to talk, right? He didn't just magically say, good morning, mother. Happy Merry Christmas, right? He didn't have the ability to feed himself. He literally fed at his mother's breast. He didn't have the ability to take care of himself. He didn't have the ability to, to, to defend himself. That's why they had to go to Egypt. He was as helpless as any other baby. By the way, the notion that Jesus never cried, doesn't, you won't find that in the Bible, by the way. It doesn't make any sense. 
I know that we, we want to we wanna like elevate his human nature, but, but that's us trying to make an idol of his human nature. He was human. He cried, right? In his human nature, he was fully human, which means he had to grow. He had to learn. He had to develop, which means there were times and things he didn't know. In fact, when I was taking my hermeneutics class, the, the professor said, do you think there was a time that maybe he got a math problem wrong? I'm going, wait a minute, he probably could have. He says, because you know, being wrong about a math problem is not actually a sin. It just means you're just ignorant of something. I'm thinking, wait a minute. In his human nature, he had to, maybe he had to learn that. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to walk. I'm like, I don't want to think about Jesus doing algebra. Thank you very much. <laughs> but the point being is, is that he right, had to grow, just like us, and develop, which means in his human nature, there are things he didn't know. Right? Jesus was not born, and then the next day, a 30-year-old man who was you know, preaching he was a newborn. He was then an infant. He was then a toddler, a child, a preteen, a teenager going through puberty, right? And then he was an adolescent, and then he became a young adult and then a full-grown man. There was a whole progression to his life. Even if you remember the story when they found him in the temple, he grew in stature, right? Before God and before man. He was, he, he was actually somebody who had to grow. That's what we're seeing in the text here. But getting through the text as fast as we can, we don't even notice that it's telling us Jesus was fully man. This is a theological truth on display. Jesus is a man. In his full-fledged humanity, had limitations. He had to eat. He had to sleep. He needed to drink water. He needed to stay warm at nights. He needed the things that we humans need. Jesus was limited, which means he couldn't be in two places at once. He had to walk places. He had to ride on boats. He had to ride on donkeys. Now, in, in Mark, we see that his divine nature shows up at times when he walks on the water, but that's not who he normally was day to day. Jesus was a man like us, but without sin. Right? That's how he didn't know. God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit hadn't revealed that to his human nature. When we see that, it makes us kind of like, I know for me, I go, Lord, this is now I'm starting to drift off into an area I can't hardly get my head wrapped around. But that reminds me that God is holy and he's bigger than my imagination anyway. So we see that he's man, but we also in this text see the other side of the coin as well. Both of sides are here. Notice it says, concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Notice that Jesus refers to himself as the Son. The Son, not a Son, the Son of who? The Father. Jesus is claiming very clear deity. He is saying, I am the unique Son of God. Jesus is certainly a man, but he's not just a man. He is the Son of God, which, by the way, is what Mark opened up in, in verse 1 of chapter 1, is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is his Son, which means He is God the Son. And so in this very little verse, we have the, the doctrine of the Incarnation. Jesus is fully God and has a divine nature. He is fully man. He has a human nature. And these natures don't mix. How do we know that? Because Jesus the, son of, because the, the, Jesus the man, while He was on earth, in that moment, did not know the hour of His return. Like That's right there in the text. One of the most important truths about who Christ is, by the way, is in verse 1. Now, just in case you were wondering, how can Jesus have a human nature and a divine nature in one person and never mix those? Well, in theology, they call that the hypostatic union, right? Like you needed to hear that word today, right? It's a big, fancy theological term that means we don't really understand, okay? Actually, there's more technical stuff to that, but the idea is, is God can do that. He can have one person, and two, two natures. The term, um, the, the term that we just, I don't think we can fully unpack here. But in this text, we see Jesus' humanity, divinity, and the doctrine of the incarnation. But then there's one other thing that we, we see in this verse. I want you to look at it again. But concerning the day or, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And what I want you to see is the distinction that Mark makes between the Son and the Father. Mark makes it clear that the Son and the Father are not the same person. 
right? Now, it's more explicit in many of the texts, but it's right here in this text. They're not the same person, right? They are very different. They, right, they may both be God, but they're different persons. That's what we see in this text here. What we see is the unique person of Christ. That Christ, though is God, the Son, is still a person who is unique and distinct from the Father, who is also God. They're both God, but they're different people. This is a foundational truth for us to hold on to as Christians. People say, where is it, where's the Trinity taught? Right? And, and, well, this right here is a verse that points right at it. This is a partial picture of the Trinity. James White summarizes the doctrine of the Trinity um, like this. He says, number one, there's one and only one God, eternal and immutable. Number two, there are three eternal persons described in Scripture, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. These persons are never identified with one another. That is, they are carefully differentiated as persons. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are identified as being full deity. That is, the Bible teaches deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit. There's one God in three persons, and each person is unique and not the other person. So the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. And neither of them are the Holy Spirit, and neither is the Holy Spirit any of them. In this, te- this text, we see that clear distinction. You have the Son who is clearly not the Father. So from this verse, we learn that Jesus is fully man, fully God, and as such, he's a second member of the Trinity and is distinct in person from the Father. That's what we see in this one verse. We see the truth about the incarnation and the truth about the Trinity. By the way, these are two essential truths. Knowing these are essential, not knowing, knowing when he's going to return and how history works itself out, that's not essential. But we're not done yet. There's actually more in the rest of this text, and I'll go fast here. Jesus says, no one knows the hour, and then he says, be on guard, keep awake. Again, what we see is the call for watchfulness, and I want you to notice right, what he says for the second time. For you do not know when that time will come. Jesus affirms that they're not going to know. They will not know when Jerusalem... They can have an idea when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because he gave them a warning sign for that. But Jesus contrasts that and says, you're not going to know when he returns. And he emphasizes this truth by telling them this parable. It is like a man going on a journey and he leaves home and he puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Jesus uses this parable to drive home this point of watchfulness and understanding you're just not going to know when. Jesus is the man that goes on the journey. Jesus will leave the earth right, at, his, at his ascension, but then one day he will return. And Jesus, before he goes... He's going to leave his servants in charge to do their work. Who were these servants? They are the church. They are his church. They are his people. Jesus says that he will leave the church in charge of his affairs and and they will do the work that they're supposed to do. Every one of the servants has work to do. Every one of them needs to be busy doing what they're supposed to be doing. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say, you, what I say to you, I shall, I say to all, stay awake. Now we can go on and on about the different times, the watches of the night and what all those mean. I've heard people talk about that in depth, but let me just get to the bottom of this for you. Jesus is the master of the house and he's telling you, tell him he's going to leave. And at some point, he's going to return in the future. And the master of the house, right, he's going to come back, but you don't know when. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but this is the third time. This is the third time he says that you don't know. Right? He says in verse 32, but concerning the hour of the day, no one knows. Then he says, for you do not know when that time will come. And then he says, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Over and over and over again, Jesus is stressing the issue. You're not going to know. You think Jesus is making a point here? Okay. 
But then he says instead, be watching for my return and doing what I told you to do. I want you to look at verse 34. I think this right here is really the key text. I think this is the point. It is like a man on a journey who leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. When your boss leaves and says, be watching for my return, he's not expecting for you to stand out the window looking at him when he comes back, right? He expects for you to be watching for him because he's going to show up at some point and he expects for to find you doing your job. That's what we're talking about here, brothers and sisters. Jesus is telling us to be watchful and he's telling us what watchfulness looks like. For Christians, being watchful is doing the work that he's given us to do. You see, being watchful is not standing outside, looking at the sky, hoping that we can see, you know, as far as the east is from the west, you know, as far as you can see lightning, right? We're not waiting for Jesus to appear in the sky somehow. Being watchful is being found by Christ, awake and alert, doing the things he's given us to do. That's the point. It's about being found by him, being alert and active, and doing the things that he's called us to do. It's about expecting him to come, to show up at any moment, at a moment that we don't expect for him to come. But in light of that, staying busy so that he doesn't actually accidentally catch us, shirking our responsibility. Being watchful is about being convinced that he will come back and that we need to stay busy doing the things he's told us to do. What did he tell us to do? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. By the way, I love being in a church when I say turn to a passage, I hear Bible pages turning and not just thumbs clicking on a screen. So, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me because he's the king. Go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the work that we're supposed to be doing. That is what he's supposed to find us doing. Evangelizing the lost, connecting those who begin to be believers connecting them to the church, into the body. That's what baptism's for. And then teaching them to follow Christ and teaching them to do all the things that you've learned to do so they can do what? Evangelize the lost, connect people to church, and then disciple those people the same way. That's the work that we're called to be doing. That's the work we're supposed to be found doing, sowing the seed, loving the people, praying that God would change their hearts. Helping new believers get connected to the body of Christ. Investing in people's lives. Helping them to grow in their understanding of the word of God. Making disciples. Doing the work that he called us to do. He's supposed to find us reading the scriptures. He's supposed to find us praying. He's supposed to find us worshiping and fellowshipping. We want him to find us bearing one another's burdens. We want him to find us building each other up in love, being salt, being light, letting our good deeds be displayed for the world around us so that God would be glorified. We're supposed to be living our entire lives, every part of our life in light of eternity. That means every part of your life. Your life as a spouse, your life as a parent, as a friend, as an employee, as a student, as a community member, your public life, your private life, your sex life, your social life, all of your life lived in light of eternity. Every part of your life, you're supposed to live expecting at any moment, no matter what you're doing, Christ could return. You're to be living your life in such a way that every part of your life is demonstrating that you're serving him no matter what you're doing, whether you're sweeping the floor, painting the garage, loving someone who's really, really hard to love, helping someone that you really don't have time to help, being there, a shoulder to cry on for someone who needs it desperately, 
That's what we're found to be doing. Right? It means we're going to be watchful and awake, not spending countless hours worrying about things we have no control over, spending countless hours looking for antichrist boogeymen around every corner. And it's certainly not about spending our lives and our resources focused on ourselves. I know that the American dream kind of gets in the way sometimes of the Christian mission because we think that we did it all for us. It's all about us, right? Retirement's about us. Our money's about us, right? It's about our vacation. We need to be watchful, convinced that everything that we have belongs to the Lord and should be in his service We need to be watchful, believing that the time that we have is his time that he's given us to be involved. I know know someone who, who thinks that they're being watchful and they're convinced that the end is really, really, really super close. They talk to me about it every time I see them, every time I see them. I can't change their mind. But here's the thing, they don't ever go to church, ever. They don't, they don't ever come to worship as a body. They don't evangelize anyone. They're not serving Christ in any capacity. They're not like helping anybody. They're not, you know what I mean? Anything that you would say that, that would, that would, that, that's the mission of Christ, they're just not doing it. But they, they read Revelations over and over again. And, you know, and they love Fox News, right? Those are the two things, and they're convinced. Right? They're not shining the light of Christ in the world. But this person thinks that they're faithfully watching Should we study the end times as a theological subject? Without question, we should. Should we anticipate Christ's return? Yes! That's what our hope is. Should we be excited to prospect that he could come at any moment without question? But we should never obsess about it. We don't actually have time for that, really. If we really understand the importance some people say, I can't wait for Jesus to come here. So you realize there's a lot of people that if he came right now would be lost forever right? We should be like thinking, Lord, give me a couple more minutes. Give me a couple more minutes so I can go talk to this person. We need to spend the time doing what Christ has called us to do, which is to get busy sharing the hope of the gospel with the rest of the world. By the way, that seemed to be the big indicator in this whole text anyway of when he's going to come back. Verse 10, he says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. I think if there's an indicator that we should be watching for as a human, human beings, that's the one. Right? Because that's the point of the incarnation, right? That's the goal. That is why Jesus came. Jesus commissioned the church to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And it seems that Jesus is saying that this is going to be accomplished before I return. Now, hear me. I believe that Jesus can come back any moment, right in the middle of the sentence, or 175 years from now. But I think the gospel being preached all over the world is probably more of an important thing to watch for than what's happening in the Middle East. Now, not to mention, that's what we're called to do. If you're in Christ, and I want you to hear me, if you're in Christ and you follow Jesus, he's, he's calling you to be on mission, sharing the gospel with everyone you meet, everyone you come in contact with. And so wrapping up this entire section, I just want you to see, we see that Jesus warns his followers of the, of the coming destruction of the city and the temple. Right? The judgment of God upon Israel, which was then a foreshadow of what's going to come in the distant future. Jesus tells his followers that one day he will return in power and glory, right? And as we wait for Jesus, he tells us, you know, that he's, we're not going to know when he comes back, but he tells us we need to be watchful as we wait. And he tells us to be watchful of false teachers and prophets who will lead us astray. He tells us to be watchful of people that would do us harm because things are going to get hard. And he tells us to be watchful, anticipating his return, being busy doing the things he called us to do. And so no matter what your end times perspective is, no matter what, how you interpret the book of Revelation or all these other texts, we are all called to be on mission, staying focused on the work Christ is giving us, expecting for him to return at any moment so that we all may be found busy doing the work that Christ has given us to do. That when he sees it, he's like, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the call for all of us. Right? Should we tickle our fancies and, and entertain the ideas? Yeah, let's do that. 
but let's stay focused on the mission at hand, the mission that, that, that the American church seems to have left behind. Brothers and sisters, let me appeal to you, right? November's coming up really quick, and a lot of people on both sides say our hope is this way or that way. And believe me, I think that you know politically there are things that need to happen, but ultimately our hope isn't in one of those candidates. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, right? There's a hurting world outside of us, and there have been people in our community that have lost somebody suddenly, and it reminds us over and over again, tomorrow is not, tomorrow is not guaranteed for anyone. Right? Let us be found in faithful, loving our families and our friends, doing what Christ has called us to do, which is to share the hope of Christ. Let Jesus find us doing that, right? and let him sort out the rest. Let's pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.